Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the last Beeson Podcast of 2019. I am your host, Doug Sweeney. I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and we would like to wish you all God's best for the new year. Today's guest is well-known, both among Southern Baptists, among evangelicals, among lots of Christians here in the U.S. and around the world, and he is here today to help us think about how to engage cultural issues with greater faithfulness and fruitfulness as Christians. Kristen will introduce him in just a few minutes, but before she does, let me remind you that our fall 2020 admission deadline is February 15, and that everyone who submits his or her application by January 15 will be entered into a $500 scholarship drawing. So please head on over to beesondivinity.com slash admission process to begin your application. Kristen, how about if you introduce today's guest? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, today, we are so pleased to have Dr. Russell Moore with us. Dr. Moore is president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the author of The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home, which was named Christianity Today's 2019 Book of the, of the Year. And he's also author of four other books, including Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Previously, Dr. Moore served as provost and dean of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he taught theology and ethics. He is married to his wife, Maria, and they are the parents of five sons. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, let us begin with a fuller introduction. We would love to know just more about you, where you're from, your Christian background, and anything that you uh, would like to share with us. Well, I grew up in Biloxi, Mississippi, which is right on the coastline, Mississippi, just out from New Orleans. And uh, I grew up in the church that my grandfather had pastored uh, before I was, uh, long before I was born, uh, and uh, came to faith there. I uh, was really nurtured within that community went through a really difficult and sort of life-forming spiritual crisis as a, about a 15-year-old, uh, where I, I started to see some things in the cultural Christianity around me that caused me to wonder if Christianity weren't just a, a means to an end. And so I really went through a really difficult uh, crisis, but thankfully, my mother had read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to me as a little uh, boy, and then I had reread them all through my childhood. So I recognized the name C.S. Lewis on the spine of Mere Christianity in the bookstore and took it home. And that the Lord really used that to uh, reorient my entire life because I could just tell from his tone of voice, uh, for lack of a better word, coming through the pages that he wasn't trying to sell me anything. He was really bearing witness to something that was that was real. And so that uh, that really was a defining uh, moment. And met my wife there in uh, Biloxi and we've uh, we've been together for 25 years this this year. Wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Dr. Moore, you are probably best known these days as the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And a lot of our listeners of course already know about that commission, but for those who don't 
Uh, would you introduce us to it? Just tell us a little bit about what you do, what the ministry is, and how you got there. Well, we really do two things. Uh, one of those things, and the most important, is to equip Christians, Christian families, Christian churches to apply the gospel to the full range of, of decisions. So everything from what do we what do we do about sort of end of life questions when we have uh, an elderly parent or grandparent and the doctors are giving us options, all the way over to how do we address racial reconciliation in our churches? How do we uh, minister to pregnant women in crisis or to uh, uh, those in need of adoption or foster care, just the full range of those sorts of questions, along with marriage and parenting and dating and, and every aspect of what it means to sort of carry the cross and follow Christ. And then the second thing is to speak out of that to the outside world. So a lot of what I do is interacting with people in government, media, uh, the tech industry and and uh, finance industry and, and those places speaking from a Christian perspective in all of those different arenas. So we work in just a, a lot of different areas. So each day we'll kind of move from dealing with a foster care initiative to uh, turning around and uh, dealing with artificial intelligence and facial recognition technologies to dealing with situation in Hong Kong. Uh, to questions of, of churches as they're grappling with child protection policy. So it's, it's never the same thing any day or even really hour to hour. Well, that'll keep you on your toes. And yeah. you've been there for about four or seven five years. years so yeah. Seven years now. Mm -hmm. And how did you become the president? I don't know, uh, <laughs> except to know. It's one of those, and I think most people can sort of see this in their lives when they look backward and, uh, and to say there are a lot of things that seem to be cul-de-sacs uh, where, where you, you think at the time, I've sort of wasted some time in this area or that area, but then later you can see how actually the Lord was preparing you and putting all of those things uh, together. And that was certainly the case uh, for me. I can look back and now make sense of what the Lord was preparing me for in in all sorts of ways. I, I had a call to ministry really early uh, as a a 12 or 13 year old, that spiritual crisis I mentioned sort of diverted that. And I ended up um, very early on in the political arena and was a, uh, a staff member to a United States congressman. And all of and, and then the Lord brought me back into ministry very quickly. And so I would look back and say, I don't see how all those things fit together. But ultimately they did. And uh, so that along with that, but I, I tell people, I think I mentioned this to you earlier today, probably the thing that I think has prepared me for all of my ministries that I've had more than anything has been youth ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, serving as a youth minister in a local church actually is the uh, most significant thing for how I do this ministry because it's actually the same thing. If you can get a van full of teenagers uh, to youth camp and deal with so-and-so's upset with so-and-so because of uh, this or that, or uh, somebody's uh, going through a, a difficult crisis because of a breakup, or, you know, all of those things. The, the issues change, but the human realities are all, are all the same. Well, we wanted to have you on the podcast to help us think about how to engage uh, these cultural issues in a faithful uh, Christian way. And um, just to start thinking about this, uh, is there a biblical approach to 
how we um, as Christians should um, engage the culture and especially um, in a politically polarized um, world that we live in today? I think there is in terms of the broad parameters. It's like anything else. uh, Different people have different callings uh, and different uh, parts that they're going to play in that. But, uh, But I think that Jesus creates a culture Uh, embodies a culture that is to reflect the kingdom of God within local churches. And then those churches shape people to be able to serve in a variety of of different ways. So I think often of John the Baptist preaching when uh, the tax collectors and soldiers uh, repent and come to him and say, what do we do now? And what does John do? Don't extort people. Don't defraud people. In other words, live a life that's honoring to Christ in the place where you've been called to serve. Uh, Obviously, that wouldn't apply to someone who has no uh, power to extort money from someone. So it's the same thing. The, The life of Christ in terms of what that obedience is going to look like is going to look different for someone who's parenting a three-year-old as opposed to somebody who is uh, starting a business or somebody who is a student at a university. But all of us are called to live out that life of of Christ. So I, I think the most important thing is in American Christianity, I think we tend to reverse the biblical pattern of 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, it's not those on the outside uh, that I judge. And of course, by that, he doesn't mean moral discernment. Uh, He means I don't hold those on the outside accountable. It's those on the inside that we hold uh, accountable, and we bear witness to those on the outside. In this sort of, uh, as you mentioned, polarized kind of environment, it's always easier to do the reverse, which is to say whatever's happening among us, we sort of let go and we're, we're very muted and ambiguous about, and we rail against our mission field. Uh, which I think is not the pattern of Jesus. Jesus is not. Um, when you see Jesus angered in the New Testament, it is never at those moments when everyone else around him is becoming angered. It's when he sees what's happening in the temple courts, uh, for instance, that he's angered and no one else is. In all the other instances where everyone else is either panicking or angry, Jesus is remarkably tranquil. And I think that tranquility comes out of confidence uh, in the providence of God and in the mission of the Holy Spirit. I think we ought to reflect that. And just often what I'm telling people is that the most dangerous cultural issues that they face are not the things that they're debating on Facebook right now. They're the things that aren't showing up on, uh, on those debates at all, either because we've sort of already accommodated ourselves to those things so they don't alarm us, or because they're just far enough around the corner that we're not preparing uh, ourselves for them at all. That's where I think we're in uh, in real peril. But it's easier for people to simply continue uh, having arguments, not as a means of persuading one another or discipling one another, but simply as a means of self-expression. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous uh, aspect of the current time we live. Mm, that's a good word. Speaking of accountability and judgment, uh, your commission in October hosted a national conference called Caring Well, Equipping the Church to Confront the Abuse Crisis. 
many of us here at Beeson, many of us uh, uh, in the Beeson podcast community have watched the stories and events unfold after the, over the last couple of years regarding the sexual abuse crisis in the SBC and in the Roman Catholic Church mm-hmm. and in other churches as well. Can you talk a little bit about the crisis itself and the way your commission has been trying to get involved and help and minister in the midst of this crisis uh, in a way that would inform our audience, bring them up to speed with what's going on, and maybe even give them some biblical tools to use as maybe they have to deal with parts of the crisis in their own lives? Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that's encouraging to me is for years and years and years, uh, whenever I would talk about these issues of church sexual abuse, I would find a lot of places having an attitude of invulnerability because people would assume, well, that would happen in the Roman Catholic Church, but it wouldn't happen in my uh, evangelical church, or it might happen in uh, some other theological tribe, but it wouldn't happen in my tribe, or it might happen in a larger church or um, a, a, a different sort of church, but we all know each other in my congregation, and not really understanding how the dynamics of uh, sexually predatory behavior actually works. So it's not, in almost no situation have I ever seen, it's not someone who comes into a church and appears to be scary uh, or threatening. The, the, The very means that that person uses is a sense of familiarity, of service, of kindness, and then uses that to groom people toward uh, toward abuse. So what we've been working on is a number, sort of a multi-pronged strategy, which is to help churches, uh, first of all, to put measures into place to seek to prevent uh, church sexual abuse. What are best practices to make sure that you can uh, see to it that you have you have mechanisms in place, and to have policies in place for when there has been uh, an allegation uh, of any sort. How do you respond? And the, the problem in a lot of different church communities and secular communities has been a tendency to cover up. And uh, sometimes people assume, well, we're, we're covering that up because we don't want the outside world to get a bad reputation. We don't want Jesus to get a bad reputation with the outside world. But Jesus never protects his reputation by covering up injustice. Uh, instead, he deals with it. And so what are the policies for for dealing with this when this happens? And I have seen many congregations in recent years who there has been something that has taken place uh, in the orbit of that congregation. They immediately call the civil authorities, uh, work with the civil authorities, completely transparent both with the congregation and with the outside uh, world. That kind of integrity uh, is needed here. And then also to minister to people who are survivors of church sexual abuse. I mean, at the conference we had, one of the things that was striking to me is how many conversations I would have with people who were there with, uh, you know, church churches would bring their, their entire staffs, and someone would come up and say, I'm a survivor of church sexual abuse, and the rest of the people on my church staff don't know it. And so it's, um, I'm working through this right now. Well, I think virtually every congregation has many survivors of sexual abuse um, in that congregation, and many of them um, believe that they would be judged as though they had done something wrong, uh, that they would be, and in many cases, their abusers have used shame uh, to, to make them feel as though they've done something wrong. So to help equip churches how best to 
uh, care for and minister to survivors uh, within your congregation and, and within your communities. Uh, so those are, are sort of key uh, pieces to what we're working on. I mentioned at the beginning that you wrote a book um, called The Storm Toss Family. What were you trying to do with that book, and what were you trying to say about the role of uh, family in the home? One of the things that I've noticed in um, in working with everything from premarital counseling all the way over to uh, parenting preparation and those sorts of things is that sometimes there will be people who will have an idyllic view of uh, what marriage ought to look like or what parenting ought to look like. And then when they come into a place of difficulty, they assume I must be doing something wrong, Jesus must be mad at me, uh, or or something like this, Uh, or even worse, they simply walk away without realizing marriage, parenting, being parented, caring for elderly parents, caring for grandchildren, all of these things are always going to mean uh, sacrifice. It's going to mean pain and vulnerability as well as uh, joy. And so the, the, the sense of self-protectiveness uh, that we sometimes put up can sometimes protect us. We're, we're protecting ourselves from love. So, for instance, there are many people who will – I've heard people critique sort of the decline in marriage rates and have said, well, this is because of a, a low view of marriage uh, on the part of uh, younger people. I completely think that is wrong. Because when I'm talking to younger people who are fearful of marriage, uh, it's not because they have too low a view of marriage. It's because they have too high a view of marriage in one sense. They think, I have to make sure that I'm, I'm finding the person who is clearly and visibly my soulmate, who can meet all of my needs, and I can meet all of this person's uh, needs. Uh, and that person doesn't exist. I mean, being married means pouring one's life out for one another. Parenting means the same thing. Being parented means the same thing. Uh, Being in a church family means the same thing. And so coming in to say, if your life is about carrying a cross and being conformed to the image of Christ, that's not just about your your, uh, personal individual life. It's also about how you love one another in families and how you uh, how you love one another in church families, and that's I think it's maybe especially true for there are a lot of people who assume that because they've come out of what somebody may call dysfunctional family background, that that means that somehow they're damaged or they're uh, they're broken in some unique way, and they then can't uh, actually uh, be productive in serving the Lord in, ter- in terms of families, and I found that is. That can be true if people don't understand what the dysfunction is in their past, but the best husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and uh, church members and, and everything else that I know are often people who have lived through really awful things back in their family of origin and who say, I'm not going to repeat those patterns. I'm going to, I'm going to go in a different direction. And I think that that's, that's true in some way of all of us. And so the, the aspects of brokenness that are, that are present in your life are opportunities for redemption. And, and to be able to, if you think of the way the Apostle Paul talks about his sufferings, to say it was in order that we would not depend upon ourselves and so that we could minister to you. I think a lot of the things that go on in our family lives 
are the same way. And what really, I think, probably prompted me more than anything to write this book was a conversation I had when I was serving as, uh, as a preacher in a local congregation. We, have, we would have a Wednesday night uh, Bible study, and we would have a time for prayer requests. And people would ask for prayer requests for surgeries and sicknesses and everything else. But one night after the uh, service was over, this woman came up, and I could see her look around, make sure nobody was around, and then she whispered, would you pray for our daughter who's away at college who told us that she's an atheist? And she's whispering this the whole time, and I said, yes, but why are we whispering? And she said, well, I don't want people hearing that and wondering what we did that our, our daughter is an atheist. And it has struck me as profoundly sad that she felt like she needed to protect herself from her brothers and sisters uh, when in reality every family in that room in some way or another has lived through that experience. Uh, and every family in the Bible, every family in the Bible that I can find has at least one prodigal, including the family of God. But there was a sense of something that's really common in our culture, and especially I think that's magnified in a social media sort of context, which is everything's about winning and displaying. So all of life becomes the Christmas card photo that we're presenting to the outside world, but that's not what life in Christ is about. We, we ought to be able to bear each other's burdens. So that was really where, where that concern came from. Another one of your recent book projects uh, is a volume that was actually written by one of my former teachers, Dr. Carl F.H. Mm -hmm. Henry, mm -hmm. called Has Democracy Had Its Day? Would you tell our listeners who Dr. Henry was and what he has to contribute to our thinking even now about democracy and cultural engagement? Dr. Henry is, is probably, undisputably, the most significant evangelical theologian of the last 200 years. Uh, certainly in an American context. And he had been editor of Christianity Today magazine uh, on the founding faculty at Fuller Theological Seminary and, and served in, in too many uh, capacities to even recount here. Um, he had published this little book about the future of democracy with the organization that I now lead uh, 20 years ago or so. And uh, we noticed that uh, it was there that we held the copyright, but I assumed this will be too far outdated to even look at again. And I went back and reread it and realized much of the uh, much of what was concerning Dr. Henry at that point uh, were things that he could see, but hadn't really manifested itself on a widespread uh, widespread level the way it has now. So the book is is really really um, uh, relevant. The same thing would be true, maybe even more so. Uh, well, definitely more so but I don't own the copyright to this one. Uh, his little book, The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, right. which was really an influential book uh, for me early on in ministry, and it's striking to me how picking it up and reading it now, it is just as relevant as it was in 1947 when it was published, if not more so. So he, he really is a, a gift to the church, uh, even even long after he's he died in 2003, um, but he's still He's still serving. Well, if you could um, perhaps attempt to do what Dr. Henry did and look into the future a bit, uh, what cultural issues do you see 
um, on the horizon that haven't maybe completely manifested themselves in a widespread way, but um, that you you see that will be challenges to the church ahead, and how can we prepare as Christians for what what's still to come? Well, some of those things are going to be the same from generation to generation. They just manifest themselves in in slightly different ways. And then some of those things are going to be strikingly new in the way that they appear. So one of the things that keeps me up at night is technology. And and not not because of, I think that that uh, technology is a tremendous tool, not only for human flourishing, but for the advance of the gospel and the mission of the church. But if we're not conscious about what's happening with technology and how technology is changing us, um, it can be uh, it can be really difficult and problematic. So that ranges from the fact right now, for instance, uh, there are so many adolescents in American life right now who are living the way a politician does through social media, uh, the way a politician would look at daily polling tracking numbers of his or her approval ratings, except without an election day in sight. Every day is judgment day where uh, people are having to think through, what do my peers think of me? Now, that is difficult for everybody who's going through adolescence, uh, but much more so when you sort of have what you believe is an objective uh, recounting of that all the time, and it doesn't end at adolescence. It continues on all the way over to issues of artificial intelligence and uh, facial recognition technology um, and, uh, and uh, augmented reality. Uh, those sorts of questions are headed toward the church. Almost no one is thinking about those things. So even something as simple as not long ago, I taught my two oldest sons to drive and when they turned 16, plan to do that next year when my other son turns 16. Uh, they probably won't teach their children to drive. There probably will be driverless cars by the time that their children uh, in, out there in the future are that age. Well, that's going to bring a lot of benefit uh, to a lot of people. It also is going to mean that very real disruptions in terms – if you think of how many people in our churches drive trucks, uh, drive Uber or Lyft or taxicab drivers or delivery people – when all of that suddenly evaporates, uh, there are going to be very real challenges for congregations in terms of helping people to find their sense of identity, their sense of calling, uh, all of those things. We're, I find often we're, we're far a few steps behind because the technology seems to be science fiction-y and out of reach until it's ubiquitous. Uh, and then by that point, I mean, right now, one of the, well, I say one of, the, the biggest issue that I deal with with parents has to do with technology. What do I do with smartphones? What do I do with video games? Those sorts of, of questions that wouldn't have made any sense uh, 10 years ago, uh, much less 20 years ago in the way that they're manifesting themselves. Uh, but that was when we really needed to start preparing for that, is what do you do with smartphone technology? What do you do with social media? before you're in a situation where everybody uh, has it. So I, I think those are things we have to be uh, we have to be looking for and on the on the watch about. And then beyond that, that more fundamental question of what does it mean to be human? I mean when we, when we live in a time of technology uh, to this degree, 
the temptation is to start to see ourselves as an aspect of technology and to see one another as, as, as tools. That becomes really, really difficult. Dr. Moore, one of the services you've provided for book readers over the years is an article that usually comes at the end of the year about the best books you've read in the Mm -hmm. previous calendar year. Are you writing one of those this year? And if so, do you have some recommendations? We've got some serious book readers listening to us now. Most of them are pastors or serious Christian lay people. Any books you want to put on their mind? Well, I I, uh, just posted that uh, up on my website uh, this week. And uh, if, if I'm trying to uh, re- the, the problem of remembering them is because I'm also working on for next week uh, the best books of the decade. Oh so I'm confusing those <laughs> two. Well, but we'll take either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but for this year, um, th- there are several things. Uh, one of them is a. Uh, uh, Library of America did the collected essays of Wendell Berry uh, all together. Beautiful uh, volume. Uh, there's a, a great book uh, that Crossway did uh, by Peter Williams, a uh, scholar in Cambridge, uh, Can We Trust the Gospels? Uh, that's just magnificently uh, done. A friend of mine, Andrew Peterson, who's a singer, songwriter, um, has done a book on creativity, adorning the dark. Uh, and normally I don't. Uh, include friends' books because I, I like to have that rule so that in case I forget a friend's <laughs> book or, or don't like it, I, I could say I have it out. Right. But I had to include it because it's so good in terms of helping people to think through how to uh, engage with creativity, no matter how uh, they're gifted uh, in those terms. And then uh, there's a, a, a novel uh, by a uh, novelist, Mary Miller. She's new, who uh, wrote a novel about my hometown, uh, Biloxi that is uh, really insightful in terms of uh, what it means to navigate family, especially in the definition of family uh, right now. So those are a few of them. Um, And for the decade, one of them that stands out is a book that I really wish everybody in the church would read called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, social psychologist, who goes in and explains how people change in terms of their perspectives and how persuasion actually works and why you can have people who can argue all day long uh, and and for a lifetime about certain issues and completely see things in opposite ways. Uh, It's a really important book in terms of understanding other people's perspectives and being able to speak to them on, on terms that they can understand. We didn't mention, but you were here. You're here at Beeson today because you gave our commencement address uh, earlier this morning. What did you tell our graduates? And for those who are listening to the podcast who are either serving in ministry or they're currently in seminary, um, what would you tell them um, about preparing for a lifetime of faithful gospel ministry? Well, I think that ministry carries with it the same um, the same dynamic that we that we talked about a little bit earlier as it applies to the family, which is that uh, need to project an image of confidence and swagger and invulnerability of winning and displaying and success um, in a way that's ultimately devastating. So I, I talked this morning about the life of Elijah, which I think. What God is showing us in the life of Elijah is a, a dramatic uh, enactment ahead of time of what cross-bearing uh, looks like. So you have uh, a prophet who always seemed a little intimidating to me 
someone who is uh, it's hard to imagine someone with more boldness and bravery and confidence than the uh, the the prophet uh, clothed in in camel's hair calling down fire from heaven but the pivot point I think of his life was not that moment of a visible victory but the moment in which he's in the he's in the wilderness uh, crying out for God which I think is the pattern every Christian goes through and that's actually where God tends to manifest his power in terms of every uh, Christian's ministry I can think of I was at a friend's retirement party uh, not long ago who had been through some awful situations in ministry and his life did not turn out the way that that he would have expected it it turned out much better because having been through that sort of um, tumult uh, he found himself ministering to people he never would have even known were there if he had not been somebody who was deeply hurt uh, and, and wounded and I think there's tremendous beauty and grace in that but it's very difficult to see when everyone's protecting themselves uh, from from any image of, of somehow being uh, vulnerable so that's that's what I tried to uh, say on the one of the happiest days of people's lives is that this isn't actually uh, the good part the good part isn't going to feel like the good part uh, at the time but that's often when you're going to most uh, most experience the presence of God Amen. And we're going to have to let our listeners know, Kristen, when we get that the video uh, of that sermon posted uh, on our website as well. It was so edifying. You have been listening to Dr. Russell Moore, President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the author, as we've said, of The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home, which was named Christianity Today's 2019 Book of the Year. I don't think it made it onto Dr. Moore's book list, but it makes it onto (laughs) ours, and we commend it to you strongly. Thank you very much for being with us. God bless you, and goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.